So, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, depending on where you are in the world. <clears throat> Today, we're going to be talking about obesity or being too fat. Um, pardon me if that's a politically charged term for you. Uh, it's, uh, it's a biological term. There's uh, body fat. And we used to, you know, for those folks for whom this is a politically charged term, you're really missing the point. And this is probably the wrong channel for you uh, because we're into health. And <clears throat> body fat is, is a, a key driver of health. It's not, we, we used to think it was an inert energy storage tissue. That was until the past 10 years and the scientific evidence started piling up indicating it's not inert. It's not harmless. It's not just cosmetic. And if I could, if there's one thing that I would try to get out there and repeat and shout from the mountaintops, obesity is not a cosmetic issue. It's a health issue. Body fat is not a cosmetic issue. It's a health issue. It, uh, body fat drives the number one killer, the number one disabler throughout the world. And that is heart attack, stroke, prediabetes, um, because it secretes, it's an endocrine tissue and it secretes endocrine uh, hormonal type chemicals. You can debate over whether they're really hormones. Put that debate aside and acknowledge that it drives prediabetes and diabetes. There's no question about it. So one of the key issues is... What causes us to gain weight? You know, <clears throat> there's, even though you're seeing less and less of this, teenagers typically, in the, at least in the past and still true, tend to be skinny. And middle-aged people tend to gain weight. It's called that middle-aged bulge. Well, <clears throat> the assumption is, well, we just eat more. So we gain weight. Now, if you've read a book or, or an article, you know, it started off as an article. Many very popular books start off in a artic as articles in places like the New York Times, get very good reception, and then get turned into books. Gary Tobbs did that with, um, I think the, his original uh, article was, it was either... It may have been the big fat lie, or it, maybe it was um, why we get fat. But the first book coming out of that was why we get fat and what to do about it. And he made an interesting point and just turned uh, obesity management on its head. He said, it's not that we, we don't get fat because we're eating more. We start eating more because we're getting fat. Now, what does that mean? That's what today's show is about. So before we get too deep into that, let's move on into uh, some other information. Just a brief, uh, for those of you who haven't joined the channel before, the channel is all about help, health. It's about helping people uh, understand what causes death and disability their biggest risk. And it's unfortunate, even in, and especially in the country, the United States, which is the wealthiest and supposed to have by far the best healthcare in the world. 
over two thirds of doctors really don't understand how to diagnose, let alone treat the, um, the number one cause, root cause of these problems. And that is insulin resistance, diabetes, and even prediabetes. And, you know, there's, at the end of the day, there's unfortunately uh, some financial reasons for that because the bottom line is doctors cannot out-prescribe a lifestyle issue. We cannot out-stint a lifestyle issue and we can't even out-bypass a lifestyle issue. And you and if you're hoping, well, okay, maybe I can out-supplement a lifestyle issue. It's not the case. So if you start looking at some of the, we have multiple ways of getting that content to you. And again, if the vast majority of it's totally free. So if you're worried about us trying to make a few bucks, we, we make plenty of money. We're fine. We're, we're financed mostly by patient care that I do. Um, the information's out there and <clears throat> it's, it's actually global. Uh, the number five country for our uh, blog downloads is China. Uh, we have a lot of countries in uh, Asia, the Middle East, South America, where there's a lot of popularity, a lot of interest in looking at the content that we're providing. And again, it's to help people understand things that even again, two thirds of the doctors responsible for this don't really understand in, in the country of the world that's supposed to have the best doctors out there. So we've got some challenges and um, whether we like it or not, as patients, we need to learn how to take responsibility for our health. And today is a, is a topic which goes into detail about that original issue. What really causes us to get fat and drive that prediabetes? Um, other information we've talked about, patient stories. People always like to hear what uh, patients have actually said. Um, the OGTT and insulin survey, there's a for those that, that understand that space, there's a, an urban myth that if you don't preload, carb load, prior to the OGTT, the glucose tolerance test, the challenge, the insulin survey, then you'll get a false negative test or a false positive test. Before you get too deep in that, and, and many, many people have, Take a look at that video. Again, it's free. We're not, you don't have to pay for the knowledge, the information. And a perennially, perennially, <coughs> perennially um, <clears throat> popular topic among folks worried about these issues and worried about their health, their longevity, is that thing everybody loves to hate on, statins. Now, here's a question. Are statins really causing your muscle pain? Maybe, maybe not. Again, we've got some recent content out there where we do as we always do. We dig into the scientific evidence. You know, one of the, <clears throat> we get a lot of feedback on the, on the channel and rightly so, because that's what we do. Uh, we don't really tell you what, we think and we don't try to present that as facts what we tell you is the 
scientific evidence. Uh, you see, I used to, I'm a physician. I used to uh, work at Johns Hopkins and I trained as what's called an epidemiologist. And an epidemiologist is somebody that looks at the studies and studies the science and critiques that scientific information. I actually irritate a lot of people because I get some, I used to get a lot more of this kind of feedback, but not so much uh, recently because of some of the production improvements we've made. But I still get a lot of feedback. Doc, just tell us what to do. Well, you know, I can tell you a little bit about what to do, but I'm really more focused on presenting the evidence in the science. Good, bad, confusing, ugly, or indifferent. The evidence so you can make the choices yourself. So <clears throat> again, if you want to just get some basic understanding of what's, what's likely to kill or disable you, get a couple of these courses. Again, if you have a problem, we usually charge anywhere from 25 to 40 bucks for these. If you can't afford that, check, check in with Michelle. You can get it for free. Uh, <clears throat> insulin resistance course, the cardiovascular inflammation course, the plaque evaluation course, in about two hours, looking at any of the three of those, you can and will know more than 90% of your doctors out there about this most important health issue for us. <clears throat> uh, things are continuing to, to escalate, to grow. The demand is just undeniable down here in Alabama, where I am today, uh, for our <clears throat> Jubilee program. <clears throat> If you want to understand a little bit about why stress tests really can't predict a heart attack, we've got a book for that. And that book goes deep into our core content about prediabetes, diabetes, insulin resistance, and the inflammation and damage to arteries that's driven for that. Many of you have uh, been looking for See, there's this one statin. You know, one of the problems with statins is that most of them drive prediabetes. So I'm going to get into a couple of content issues real quick before we get into the main content show for today. Um, one, most statins tend to drive, they tend to make the problem that they're solving worse. They drive insulin resistance. All the statins do except for one, statin. Now, I use a lot of Crestor in patients that need it. I use extremely little statins compared to the vast majority of docs. I only recommend them when you have documented plaque. And that's not because of LDL. It's because of cardiovascular inflammation. And if you don't understand that, I would say, you know, go back to the book, go back to the course. And again, you can go back to the videos. The information's free. But there is one statin that tends to not uh, push that insulin resistance problem, and that's patavastatin. patavastatin. The makers of patavastatin know that. That's why they charge so much money that most of us, our insurance companies, don't want to cover it. And so there's ways to try to get less expensive patavastatin. Uh, for the past few years, the only way has been going through Canada Online Pharmacy or another out offshore pharmacy. Now there's an onshore U.S. pharmacy that uses what's uh, sort of a generic, and I won't go into the technical details on sort of, gen uh, sort of a generic, other than to say it's a slightly different salt for those of you who are, uh, 
are geeks and curious about this. It's called Zipetamac. And here's a place where you can get it. It's called Marley Drug. We don't make any money for, from Marley Drug. We don't make... <clears throat> that, that's not the purpose. The purpose is uh, to help. Uh, so let me go into another short topic today. You know, <clears throat> so as I make... We, we make changes here in the uh, Alabama... Um, healthcare market. One of the things that we run into, and you run into that all over the world, people consider medicine a solo sport. You've got your one practitioner, your doc or your NP, and the doc holds out a shingle and the patient comes in and they see the doc and the doc sees them one-on-one -on -one and tells them exactly what to do and then they move on. Well, you know, when you talk about the science and the evidence, the science is really clear. That's the wrong way to practice medicine. And, and if that's your way, that's your expectation, I'm going to see one person and they're going to tell me, you know, they're going to write this. They're going to see me. There's not much time. They'll see me for about 15 minutes, five, five minutes, 10 minutes, and they'll write me a script and I'm gone. You're shortchanging yourself. You're putting yourself at danger. The systems that actually use a team approach are the systems that actually drive quality. And he here's why the team approach is helpful. You need what's called interprofessional care. The doc, the, in the primary care doc, the endocrinologist, the nurse, the dietitian, the health coach, um, other professionals like the pharmacist, all of these different professionals need to be on your team. You are the most important member of the team and you need to have a different set of expectations from thinking, I just go to a doc, I get my script and then I'm gone, I'm doing something else. Again, if you're looking to improve your health and therefore your life, that's not the way to do it. It's not Health is not a spectator sport. So I'll leave that comment. Again, it was just a comment about what the science is showing. Is overeating really the cause of obesity? And if you don't like that term, overweight. Uh, you'll hear us use the term. Anyhow, this is, an, this is a coverage of an article. For the most part, this is a good article and we're gonna cover the, the basics on it, but it falls apart at some of the very core, and we'll talk about that. So don't worry about getting misinformed. We'll talk about the places, the weak spots, but let's get to the, to the article itself. It's in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, 2021. Uh, participants were from the US and Denmark. Uh, the treatment of obesity might sound really simple to some. Eat less, move more. And who of us has not heard that before? So if we've all heard that, why are worldwide obesity rates increasing every day? Is it possible that the current approach, based on calorie counting, diet and exercise, in other words, the bank account concept, calories in, calories out. Is it possible that that's misguided? 
Well, a study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition 2021 suggests that maybe eating more might not be the cause of obesity, but maybe the other way around. In other words, as Gary Taubes first coined in his book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, maybe it's not that we're getting fat because we're eating more. Maybe it's that we're eating more because we're getting fat. Let's go back and look at adolescence for a second. Teenagers eat a lot of calories each day. They're classic for that. So, you know, and yes, at this point, there is a problem with teenage obesity, but even in thin teenagers, you tend to see a lot of calories. So is that overeating? Is overeating what causes teenagers to grow in this stage of life? Or is it rapid growth, which requires building new tissue? And what is it that makes teenagers eat more? You know, the reason I'm bouncing around this topic is to help all of us understand something. I think you're all sitting there saying, it's the hormones, you dummy. It's the hormones. Well, guess what? You're right. It is the hormones. And if it's the hormones in teenagers, maybe it's the hormones with us middle-agers as well. You see, in obesity, insulin is key. When we eat rapidly digestible carbohydrates, sweetened cereals, potato chips, sugary beverages, those raise insulin levels too high. And if we don't, and if our insulin res receptors are not receptive, sensitive to insulin, we just have to keep pushing, getting more, releasing more and more insulin to bang against those resistant insulin receptors. So after that, fat cells store a lot of calories, leaving less available in the bloodstream, and that triggers hunger and overeating. In other words, you can't really, one of the things that people don't understand is that insulin also decreases fat burning. That's, a, that's not a problem that, that teenagers have. They don't have all that extra insulin, so they're not laying down as much fat, and they're not... Uh, they don't have a problem with decreased fat burning. Again, this is an insulin issue. Uh, you see that term oedema. It's not oedema. It's edema. This is the, uh, the English slash European spelling for edema. Edema is too much fluid. You know, you get too much fluid in your legs from heart failure or fluid in your lungs from heart failure. You remember the... Uh, researchers in this study were from Denmark, and that's a European version of uh, the, the English word edema. So in edema, the excess fluid builds up in body tissues, legs, for example. People with edema become thirsty even when they might have an excess of fluid because the fluid's not reaching the right places. It's piling up where the body can't access it. Translate this to obesity. The difficulty resisting hunger is not the lack of discipline, rather a biological problem involving how calories are distributed in the body. So with the edema, you've got, you've got plenty of fluid, but you're still thirsty because you cannot act, your body's not accessing that fluid where it needs it. With... Uh, insulin resistance, diabetes, prediabetes, and the obesity that goes along with it, you've got plenty of calories, 
It's just that your body can't access those calories and it's stuffing them into fat cells. This is a totally opposite perspective from just eating less. The authors in this study suggest to focus on what to eat instead of how much you eat. So now we get to the carbohydrate insulin model or the way they call it, CIM. This is not new, by the way. If you have more interest in it, you can read G Gary Taubes' books, um, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, or a 700-page version of that book, which he calls Good Calories, Bad Calories. I prefer uh, books by two other authors, Robert Lustig, an endocrinologist at UC San Francisco, and he's got several books. One, the first big one was Fat Chance. David Ludwig, I, is, to me, is even better. David Ludwig is quieter. He's not as flashy as, Ro as Robert uh, Lustig. Um, but his information is really, really good. And so is his research. It's just spot on. David Ludwig is also an endocrinologist. Both of these guys, their names sound alike, and they're both endocrinologists, and they both run obesity units in large uh, academic uh, medical centers, Lustig in UC San Francisco and David Ludwig at Harvard. David Ludwig's book is something that is classic to this issue. It's titled Always Hungry. And again, it hits to that issue of we're eating more. We can't access those calories. And so therefore we're always hungry. Now, I brought those guys up because they're both endocrinologists and they call it something slightly different. They don't call it the carbohydrate insulin model. They call it the endocrine model of weight management or weight gain. So back to the script here. Although there's logic related to energy intake and expenditure with the conventional model, it's not the root cause of weight gain. As insulin resistance increases, weight gain um, no, we, they, we got that backwards. As insulin um, resistance increases, weight gain increases. Circulating fuels decrease. So again, pardon us, we got that, that bullet, uh, the exact opposite. Other hormones such as sex steroids and cortisol have effects in adipocytes. And if you don't remember, adipose is, fat, is the technical term for fat tissue and cytes is the technical term for cells. So we're talking about uh, other hormones. It's not just insulin. Insulin is the major driver here, and it's, it should be called the insulin model or the hormonal model. But other hormones uh, get involved with this as well. And a, a big component of this issue regarding fructose that you see in the fourth bullet comes from Robert uh, Lustig. He really focuses on fructose. And yes, fructose promotes new fat creation in the liver. And guess what? Fatty liver has become recently the number one cause of liver disease. So what are they suggesting that we eat? And I think there's agreement, whether you're talking to or listening to Ludwig, Lustig, Taubes, me, um, the rest of this uh, world, it, eat things that don't drive insulin. 
uh, avoid processed carbs, um, increase intakes of, of nuts. So you know, there is some variation nuts, but nut, any nut is going to be better than processed carbs. Full fat dairy doesn't drive as much insulin, believe it or not. You know, there's this thing, there's this concept that protein drives insulin. Academically, yes. Practically, don't worry about it. Olive oil, avocado and avocado oil, dark chocolate. Again, the study authors are talking about these things may decrease insulin levels. And that's exactly what we want to accomplish. Focus first on decreasing your insulin levels then it will become so much easier to lose that excess body fat. A low calorie and low fat diet further restricts the already limited supply of energy to the body. So uh, be careful if your first approach is low calorie, low fat, because you can end up increasing the hunger uh, without fixing the problem. So, Conclusions for that study were the CIM, carbohydrate insulin model, might not explain all the causal mechanisms of obesity. In fact, probably doesn't explain the biggest one. Now, we will all acknowledge this. Food is a behavior, eating food, you know, it's more than just fueling the body. There is a major behavioral component. I've been very clear about my own food addictions, sweets addictions, dessert addiction. You know, I grew up in the Southern United States where sweet tea and blackberry cobbler and dessert were, you know, well, sweet tea and desserts were components of every meal, uh, often including breakfast. So I've got my own addictions that I have to deal with. Notions of palatability, preference for sweetness, they can drive consumption of sugary foods. But that's still consistent with the carbohydrate insulin model. That's a major part of the problem. There's a necessity to understand that a paradigm exists regarding the causes of obesity, and further evidence should be collected to fully understand that. You know, there, I have seen very few articles in the scientific medical literature that did not end with further studies are indicated to fill in the blank. So again, uh, this is a perennial topic. It is core. It may be the most important topic uh, that we cover in terms of helping people get to a healthy life. So uh, I believe we're there at the end of that of that. And Gilbert, if you'll give us the um, transition, we'll go into Q&A. Uh, Bambi Grage, Gage was the first, Grage was the first to join us. And Bambi had a question. I have a 72-year-old friend, started treatment uh, for high blood pressure and was recently in the hospital for unknown AFib, now on meds. He's having BNP tests today and getting a patch monitor to wear. I'm assuming he's, we're talking about the, well, let me just, can you talk about the BNP test? Is it, you know, I get the best topics from questions like this. Thank you so much, Bambi. Can you talk about the BNP test? I gave him your recommended test before all of this and his doctor ignored him. Well, you know, we're not, uh, we're certainly used to that. He had an ABI, 
arterial uh, ankle brachial uh, index probably an EKG and they told him he may have had a previous heart attack. Well, he may have. Um, ABI is one of my top 10 videos. And I have to tell you, it's interesting as a content creator, I end up and I go back and I regret a lot of that ABI video. It's not that, it's not that ABI doesn't exist. It's not that people don't know, uh, shouldn't know about ABI. Here's the problem with ABI. Uh, it is sort of a potential do-it-yourself cardiovascular plaque evaluation test. But the point I keep trying to make is that uh, don't rely on that. You know, if you go to the, some of the Stanford Medicine tests, uh, Stanford Medicine has a huge program to talk about high-quality tests. And ABI is included in that uh, Stanford list. And They've got several different videos describing it. Um, I could say they're better than mine, and in many ways they are. But still, don't rely on an ABI to be your be-all and end-all. There are many, many ways that, uh, from a quality perspective, and just the, the basics of the test itself, that make it really clear you need more than just an ABI to detect plaque. You really do. Uh, and we've talked about plaque detection, plaque evaluation multiple times. CIMT is one that I keep pushing because it's the only way to get a, an understanding of the critical piece. Not only do I have plaque, any plaque at all, but is that plaque, is there any soft plaque? And Every other test, including calcium tests, it's been shown you can have a negative calcium test and still have soft plaque in there. We'll be covering that in a, one of our upcoming topics. It's not likely, but it's certainly possible. Now, I just went down, uh, Bambi asked me one topic, and I went down a, a different bunny hole. Let's go back to the BNP question. Uh, BNP, uh, NT pro BNP is where this test came from. And some of the details behind it were, you know, it was first discovered in the brain. And why do we use it for a heart test? The, the B stands for brain. It, it's NT pro uh, naturetic, uh, excuse me, in, uh, NT brain pro naturetic protein. Now, what they discovered, though, was that it's an indicator of stress for the heart. And what they're looking for is, is that heart in failure. Now, so NT pro BNP or BNP is a, is a heart, heart failure test. It's a, an enzyme that's released by heart muscles, cardiac muscles that are under stress. Now, like so many things, like, for example, insulin resistance, we used to think that just a, you know, you were only in trouble if you have full-blown diabetes, and you weren't in trouble if you had a little bit of insulin resistance. Now we know that's not true, really not true. Same thing with NT pro BNP. They used to think when they first discovered it, well, if you have these really high levels, you're in major heart failure. It's not a problem with these lower levels. Mm. Not true. What they have found is that the, these lower levels of NT pro BNP 
are very much indicative of this metabolic process of the heart muscle straining to do its work. So the original numbers for those, you know, everybody always loves to ask me numbers, you know, what's the dosage for this supplement? What, you know, what's, and I'm terrible with numbers for the most part, but, uh, 450, 450 is the number, but it's only for uh, pro BMP, but it's only for people 75 and older. For 75 and younger, it's 125. So that, again, if you realize, you look at those two numbers and you think about the age and you think about life expectancy, normally expect or normal expectations or current societal expectations for life expectancy, you know, we all expect people to have a lower life expectancy at age 75. So we're okay with somebody having much higher numbers uh, at 75 and above. I'm not. I've got plenty of people that are in their 70s and 80s and are very healthy. And I would not want to see an NT Pro BNP of two or 300 and say, well, you're fine because you're 80 and uh, it's not really positive until it's 450 or above for your age. That's the wrong interpretation. So uh, a lot of prevention guys, and you'll see it in my comment, a lot of prevention guys call it, you know, look at it and interpret it slightly different. We call it the happy heart uh, test. So Bambi, I hope that helped. And we'll go to, well, we don't want to repeat my comments. Um, and I was just saying, yep, I will cover NT Pro BNP. And that's it in the text. If you're able to see the comments, you may have seen a lot of what I just talked about. So at lower levels, prevention-oriented docs call it the happy heart test. So good morning, Flick T. Bart, good morning, Bart. Uh, here we go. Let's see. Leo Acapulco. Good morning. Ready for more life-saving information. Well, thank you so much for your interest, Leo. Uninsurable. Hi. Uh, and good morning to Tanner Bruin from Atlanta. And Gator. Uh, Gator. He doesn't like to be called the full name, just Gator. I believe the Taub's book you were referencing is Why We Get Fat. Yes, thank you much. That's it. And the subtitle is, and what to do about it. And as we said, his recommendation for what to do about it is sound. It's not eat more, move less. I mean, eat less, move more. It's start looking at the kind of food you're eating. Decrease the foods that increase an insulin response. Um, <clears throat> the <clears throat> next comment, Fort Worth Westside, can you explain the term MHO, medically healthy obesity? Oh, you know, that's an interesting point. There's some good articles uh, and actually a couple of good books. At the end of the day, those books, I'm concerned, have done more damage than help. See, here's what the issue is. <clears throat> There are gradations of health with obesity. If you take, and I wish I, again, I've done some videos on it. I, I, hopefully I can explain some of this. You can see some obese people that have 
if you do like a spec scan or one of the scans that shows body fat, muscle, and bone, here's sort of differences you can see. Uh, leg In a leg this size, some of them have body fat, I mean muscle, that much. And therefore that difference is that much fat. Others, on the other hand, have muscle that's only there. So much, much higher components of body fat than muscle. And those are the classic people that you see, quote, healthy obesity. Um, and sure enough, uh, somebody with certain levels of metabolism, often driven by muscle mass, uh, are in a much healthier level than other people that have obesity. Um, there was way too much focus on that. And again, I think it led too many people to say, well, I'm overweight, I'm obese, I, but I work out a lot, or, but I'm a healthy one. I've got patients like that. And again, that's a major problem. I hope that helps, Fort Worth. Uh, let's go into... John Tocho, good morning. Remember, John, thank you so much. John is always reminding us, hit that like button. As you see, I mean, this is free information. It's getting out to the world. It's helping people save their life. And it's information that they're not getting other places. And there's a lot of folks like uh, Tired Looking for Name who actually um, do super chats and make uh, he, he made a $20 Super Jack contribution. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. That helps us get that information out all over the world. And you know what? If, if you just want to do something for free, just hitting uh, the like button, like John's suggesting, that'll help get this information out. Because in this world of social media, everything's being driven by the <clears throat> AI, the artificial intelligence that drives, that puts information in front of people. And that's a great way, uh, an even better way uh, to get that information in front of people. Something that the AI really responds to is to take links to our information and put it in other social media like Twitter or Facebook or whatever. So thank you again, John. I appreciate you reminding us to look at that. 53 watching and only 17 likes. We can do better. Thank you again, John. Appreciate it. Okay, so Becky Quick, good morning from Kentucky. You know, you're the first person. I live in Kentucky. I live in Lexington, Kentucky, and I haven't heard, had some, we get a lot of comments from all over the world. And uh, I think you're the first one to say you're from Kentucky. Good morning from Kentucky. Last week you stated you ate around 100 cal or 100 carbs or, a, or less a day. You do low carb, but would like to know the types of meat and carbs you eat. Thank you. Um, you know, I, a lot of people worry about seed oils. I don't worry quite so much about those, but I don't. You know, I, I tend to, so I tend to do most of my cooking with uh, avocado oil. I use a lot of, the majority of my calories do come from, uh, probably from avocado oil, uh, more so now, and it used to be mostly olive oil in the past. Um, dairy products, I'm not afraid, I used to be afraid of cheeses, cheeses and fats, you know, for about 20 years during the low fat 
era. And uh, then I became insulin resistant and had to look at what I was doing. So I've uh, decreased the carbs, um, as we said, and um, I'm not afraid of, I'm not even afraid of bacon. You know, a lot of people just say, oh, well, you know, bacon's terrible for you. Now, here's another distinction in that space, though. People talk about the, quote, keto diet, and they think it's eating all, all, the, all bacon all day, every day. And that's not it. You know, I travel a lot, and I go out to eat a lot. And if I eat, whether at home or going out to eat, if I eat a lot of red meats, especially steak type of meats, I get, I get fat. You know, even whether low carb or no low carb. Uh, and in fact, I've got my own food addictions as well. One of them has to do with sweets. The other one has to do with um, amounts, portions, portion control. And, you know, you go to you, the typical U.S. Um, food habits are these giant portions of red meat. And so if I, I I've always traveled a lot with my work, except for, you know, the past up until this year, I had a couple of years where I didn't travel. Other, you know, the rest of that 40 years, I was traveling a lot. And if I ate a, a, an entree when I was out, <clears throat> I would gain way too much weight, too much portions, even if it was low carb. So I've always, almost always had a very simple formula, uh, a salad with a piece of meat. And usually it's not meat, meat. It's usually a piece of fish. So salad, piece of fish, salad, piece of fish, salad, piece of fish. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not a foodie. I don't have uh, a lot of, I got some habits and they're just, that's what they are. Now, in terms of food prep at home, I do like, I tend to do like a weekly food prep and I'll get, uh, I'll do that as well. About half my meals are salad and a, piece of fish or just a salad um, or some other uh, low carb kind of thing. The other half of meals, maybe two thirds are a version of this thing. Uh, one of the low glycemic carb foods like broccoli uh, or Brussels sprouts or cauliflower and I'll saute those with olive oil and some, you know, powdered Parmesan cheese. And that is what I eat. And I can't tell you the amount of, <clears throat> up until the past few years, it was always salad and a piece of fish. Now it's salad and a piece of fish or that uh, broccoli or, uh, cauliflower or um, Brussels sprouts sauteed in, uh, in avocado oil and uh, with a little bit of uh, powdered Parmesan. So it's the sauteed veg with powdered Parmesan and olive oil. Sauteed veg with powdered Parmesan and olive oil. Sauteed veg with powdered Parmesan and olive oil. And I'm being a little bit repetitive here because my diet is very repetitive. You know, it's an interesting thing. I'll make one other comment about that. One of the first big life-changing events that people have to wrap their head around when they start getting into more of a 
healthy lifestyle is they have to start doing the calorie count. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. No, doc, I don't count calories, but I just sort of avoid high calories. High, I mean, I don't count carbs, but I avoid high carb stuff. And I always say, you know what? You got to go through the pain. You got to go through two weeks of actually counting carbs. You got to do it. It's like that old Listerine commercial, you know, the taste you hate once a day. You don't have to do this once a day. You got to go through it once in your lifetime, two to three weeks of actually counting your glycemic carbs. Because then you know what you're, what you're eating. And the, 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 the next thing you begin to understand, usually people start getting headachy. They start getting the keto flu then because they are actually becoming aware of the glycemic carbs that they're eating and they're actually pulling them out, whether they're thinking about it or not. So then their weight actually tends to drop those first two weeks. The point about habit, though, is once you've done that for two weeks, you really understand the basics of your habits. I'm not the only person with food habits. The vast majority of us do not eat a different breakfast every day. We do not eat a different lunch. We do not eat a different number of meals. We tend to have our habits. And after about two weeks, you start to get a really good handle on where your issues are. And it becomes easy then. You start developing your habit. You start learning where the low-hanging fruit is. Maybe we should pardon that pun. You start learning where, where your most easily reversible source of carbs is. And then you start thinking about it. And then you just, you know, try to nail, <clears throat> excuse me, try to nail that habit as well. Uh, speaking of that cough, I may end up biting the bullet and switching from, from an ACE inhibitor back to an ARB one day. I won't go into that topic unless uh, somebody asks about it again later. Gator, 20 net keto for a while. Would love to know exactly where electrolyte supplementation should be. I know serum tests do not seem to work for it. Is there no scientific way to help get that dialed in? I, unfortunately, I don't think there do there there is. You know, Gator's talking about the point that you know, <clears throat> as people start cutting their carbs, one of the interesting things that happens is that there's some diuretic effect to that. You see, glycogen, which is um, which is what carbs, are, what your body does with carbs, especially in your liver and your muscle. Uh, glycogen takes, glycogen is nothing but a chain of multiple carbs, you know, a glucose, a glucose, a glucose, a glucose. And glycogen is stored with fluid. And in the body, fluid is not just fluid, it's salt water. So as you begin to cut carbs, you begin to lose salt water. And there's this big, um, it's not totally urban myth. There's truth to the fact that you do lose salt water, but there's a little bit of over concern about, uh, about where that goes. I'm not saying that you have that gator bear geek. I'm just saying that uh, there's a, <clears throat> sometimes people get a little bit too focused on the concern about those. I will tell you one thing. You know, there's a major public health thing about blood pressure. And sure enough, blood pressure is associated with these chronic diseases. It's 
probably more of an issue with um, the impact of insulin resistance on the kidneys. I won't go down that bunny hole right now either because I'm busy going down this one on, on sup, uh, supplemental um, electrolytes. Uh, <clears throat> here's the thing. Uh, you probably do lose some salt. Um, and that runs right into a public health concept uh, on the low salt diet. They talk about blood pressure and low salt. And uh, again, I think there's a little bit too much fear on the uh, keto side that, oh, people are going to get too little salt. There's also too much fear on the public health side that people are going to get too, too much salt. Um, I'll leave that. I probably gored enough people and made enough people mad already. Tanner Bruin, what is the optimal body fat percentage as opposed to BMI? Male, 68 years old. Hmm. You're going to get mad at me, Tanner, because I'm not going to give you a number. I will mention two or three neighborhoods. Uh, some would say, you know, 5%. You know, 5% is like Arnold Schwarzenegger when when he won, uh, 3%, you know, when he won Mr. Olympia. And his BMI was 30 at that point. So I get that response from a men especially. Well, I've got a lot of muscle, so BMI really doesn't impact me. And it's like, yeah, Arnold was 30, which is a cut point for moderate obesity at the time that he won Mr. Olympic. And he didn't have a lot of fat, Mr. Olympia. So if you look like Arnold at the time that he won that, then yeah, BMI is very deceptive. There are people for whom this is a real issue. And one of the easiest ways to adjust for that is um, the, um, um, your waist size. You know, if it's 35 and above, you really need to work on it. If it's 34, you're getting closer. Now, body fat is like um, triglyceride over HDL. People want to say, what's the cut point? What's the cut point? Uh, the lower, the better. I don't see a cut point. That's, you know, cut, I get really frustrated with cut points. They used to say, well, if your blood sugar never goes over 200, then you're fine. You're healthy. You don't have to worry about it. I've got plenty of people whose blood sugars have gotten to no higher than 160 and they have and They've, there are plenty of people that have died with heart attacks from that. So um, you want healthy levels and with body fat, I mean, you don't want to get, for 68 year olds, you know, I, I personally think 10% um, is a really good target. Um, but Here's another reason why I, I stammer and stutter and get frustrated about cut points, uh, especially in the body fat area. So how are you um, how are you measuring your body fat? Are you doing electrical impedance? Well, that's you know that really depends on how much your hands are sweating. Are you doing or? Uh, um, Flotation in a tank? Oh, well, you know, that depends on how much you can actually push the air in your lungs out of your lungs. Oh, no, no, you're doing the, I can't remember the name of it, the new Intuit device, which has great marketing. It's not Intuit, but it's a related name. 
great marketing. Everybody's using it these days. I, you know, I know some, uh, some prevention docs that are using it. Just believe in it 100%. There is no really good body fat measurement. So if there's no really good um, uh, perfect model, perfect measurement for body fat, then what's the perfect number? That's the big issue that I have with body fat measurements. Thank you, Tanner. Great topic. And I'm sorry if I didn't give you the number you wanted. Uh, Black Tengu. Before starting Keto Crestor, I was a big bread eater. Oh, you know, I, I forgot to mention, I was too. Prior to you know the, the carb issue, it was a salad, a piece of fish, and a whole lot of bread. <clears throat> so anyhow, uh, back to your question. Before starting Keto and Crestor, I was a big bread eater and on 10 milligrams of Lipitor. Then my A1C was 4.4%, C-reactive protein of 0.12, but my triglyceride over HDL was 2.7. What's the logic in this? It's a really good point, Black Tangu. And it takes us down one of the more sophisticated areas of lab interpretation. Um, the triglyceride over HDL ratio is a very important ratio. And so is A1C. But there are problems and differences in both. They usually correlate. But, you know, you've got a great example of where they don't seem to correlate at all, at least with you. And... There are several different reasons why that could happen. First of all, A1C is also driven by uh, hemoglobin. So things like anemia, uh, you know, and the American AACE, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists is very clear. They say you do not, the vast majority of doctors make their diagnosis of diabetes with A1C and the, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists are just very clear that you shouldn't do that. And their point is, well, things it's hemoglobin, so things that impact hemoglobin will impact the A1C, like kidney disease, liver disease, thalassemia, genetics, um, being pregnant. And I can tell you, I've got a ton of patients, in fact, probably the majority of my patients, that have full-blown diabetes do not have a high A1C. And where's that coming from? Something totally different from all of this, and that is they're not eating carbs. So that's a problem with the A1C test, Black Tengu. Are there problems with the triglyceride over HDL? Yes, so triglyceride over HDL is a combination of two things. Number one, your inherent current me metabolic ability, which, as you mentioned, might be impacted by a statin. Uh, 10 milligrams of Lipitor, yeah, it could impact that. Uh, but, you know, the biggest driver for most of us is age plus genetics on how well we metabolize carbs. So here, here's what the issue is with the triglyceride over HDL ratio. Triglycerides, as we mentioned earlier in the in the program, insulin decreases fat burning. So guess what? If you eat a lot of uh, 
insulin driving foods and you have this high fasting or basal insulin, your body can't burn that triglyceride as well. So your blood triglyceride levels go up, your body fat goes up because you're not burning it. And that's a problem. The other side is HDL tends to go down. And why is that? I'll also add the healthy large uh, LDL particles go down. And that is because whether you're talking about HDL or LDL, the healthy particles out of those groups are the large fluffy ones. Those are also the particles that tend to have the normal cholesterol. When you have, when you have a carb metabolic uh, metabolism problem, these large fluffy particles, whether they're LDL or HDL, normally carry cholesterol, but that cholesterol starts getting replaced by fatty acids. Well, when these uh, fatty acid laden or carrying large fluffy particles, whether HDL or LDL, when those particles pass through the liver, the liver metabolizes that fatty acid and therefore the particle goes away. So you lose your large fluffy HDL, which are the ones you really want, and your large fluffy LDLs, which are the ones that you really want. So that's why the triglyceride or HDL ratio is impacted greatly by this issue. And that's also why usually you would expect to see the correlation that you're assuming, black tengu, I would agree, but it's not always that simple. Great topic. Gave me a chance to go down a bunch of bunny holes. Thank you so much. Um, as, as you see up in the right-hand corner, um, Gilbert is flashing a rumble sign. So we're getting set up on rumble and, um, and locals. And there's a couple of reasons. You know, a lot of people may be looking and saying, oh, you know, isn't rumbles that politically oriented con conservative group? Well, I, I'm not into politics. This is not a pol political show. I, you know, I, I would say I'm down in Alabama. My family, I'm serving the Alabama uh, public. My family's in South Carolina, uh, my family of origin. Uh, so my perspective is that Republicans or, or conservatives need everybody. It doesn't matter what your political leaning is. You need good prevention and you deserve good prevention information. But there's another issue, and that is getting a little bit better access through, um, uh, through more of a, um, a webinar type means. And there's a locals platform that goes along with Rumble, which we will be uh, using more in the future to help get webinar type information out, which is a way that you can um, develop, form, and interact uh, with more of a community type of approach than the simple uh, things that you see on YouTube. So thank you, uh, Gilbert. Not sure about Lionelson, yes and goodbye. Uninsurable, another super chat. Thank you so much, Uninsurable. Thanks for getting me set up with a CGM prescription. Can you talk about Repatho? My friend is in, uh, takes it in lieu of statins. How does it work? Is it pretty safe? <clears throat> it's an interesting concept. Um, and yes, yeah, so Repatha 
Thank you for the super chat, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and I will just make the point. Uh, there's a couple of things about uh, the FDA that I disagree with. Now, where am I going with this? <laughs> just give me a minute. I don't think the FDA should require a prescription for uh, CGM, Libre, or Dexcom. And I also don't think they should require a prescription for metformin. So I have these programs where I help you get access. I do have, you know, I am a doctor. I'm licensed in all 50 states in the U.S., and I do have to uh, see you as a patient. But these programs are far more, um, I, they're cheap. It, it helps you get what you need. So um, uninsurable uh, is obviously using CGM and now has asked about Repatha. Repatha is uh, PCSK9. What does PCSK9 stand for? Pro, pro something subtilisin kinase inhibitor. Now, what does that mean? The history behind the development of those, uh, that, those drugs, is that, that drug class, is very interesting. Uh, I guess I should tell you what it is. It's a new biological, uh, biologically genetically derived drug class. It's the thing that was just the big thing for the past five years in cholesterol management. And what they do is they really decrease cholesterol, LDL cholesterol. They just, you know, you think statins decrease L, uh, LDL cholesterol. These PCSK9s, Repatha is the most common one. They really do. I mean, like 60, 80% or more. And so they're overused. Uh, they're getting to the point where a lot, of, a, lot of a lot of insurance companies are covering them now. In the first few years, I don't, I don't know what they are now. They're still thousands of dollars and make, I don't know if they're still tens of thousands of dollars per year. But I'm a scientist. I'm interested in the science side. I will tell you, one of the concerns that I have is whether or not they decrease cardiovascular inflammation. And the reality is there's not a lot of information uh, that would support the fact that they are. So a lot of people are actually on uh, PCSK9 inhibitors and statins. I use... Um, well, I don't use nearly as many statins as doctors do for the reasons that I discussed. Uh, I don't focus quite so much on LDL levels unless there's what we call FH, familial hypercholesterolemia. And even the majority of those folks, the real problem is not the LDL level. It's when you, they start getting uh, insulin resistance and cardiovascular inflammation. Um, <clears throat> let me just tell a quick story and then I'm going to move on. They did this very different, they discovered this drug class in a very different way from the way that they usually discover drug classes. If you look at, um, oh, somebody help me, I'm having a senior moment, the name, oh, rap, rapamycin. If you look at rapamycin, which is still sort of a, it's used in a lot of things like uh, stents. Um, it helps with autophagy and is supposed to help Anything that helps with autophagy tends to help with cardiovascular inflammation. 
Uh, I don't use it. A lot of people call me and ask me if I will write scripts for it. I don't because, again, for that indication, it's not really that clear that it's safe. And that's why I don't use it. So <clears throat> rapamycin was found by, you know, the way drugs are typically discovered. They send these people out to these crazy places in the world. And this crazy place was Rapa Nui, otherwise known as Easter Island. You know, the island that has the big, the big uh, head carvings in stone all over the island. They found this chemical that was there. And they named it, uh, they ended up rapamycin. That's where the term rapamycin comes from. The, uh, the local name for that island is Rapa Nui. Now, what's that got to do with PCSK9s? So that was the way most, the vast majority of drugs are discovered. You know, they'll send people through the Amazon finding these unusual chemicals and then bring them back and find out if they have any impact on different metabolic processes. They did it the opposite way with the PCSK9s. They started looking genetically at people that had low LDL levels. And on this one, they found this cheerleader, this young female in Texas, who had a very low LDL level. And what they began to do was look at her specific genetics, her met metabolic processes as driven by her genetics, and they isolated the thing that was doing it. And it was a thing called the PCSK9, the pro, pro, um, you know, I used to know that, rattle it off, subtle icing, uh, kinase inhibitor. So what that does, PCSK9 is a mechanism that sticks up out of the liver cell and it, and I've got this hand, I, I hope that it's not confusing, but it's looking for and waiting for LDL. When an LDL particle comes by in the bloodstream, it latches onto it pulls it down into the liver cell and burns that LDL up. Now, when you start looking at people that have FH problems, familial hypercholesterolemia problems, there are about 2,000 different genetic variations that can drive that process. The vast majority of them have to do with problems associated with this PCSK9 process. So they started looking at that and they said, well, you know what, if we could find a or develop a drug that inhibited um, an, inhib an, an inhibitor of it. So it's going to sound logically a little bit backwards. Unfortunately, that's the case. It's an inhibitor of an inhibitor of that process. And if you could find one, that would actually decrease LDL. And that's exactly how it happened. So I hope I didn't butcher that explanation too much, and I hope it uh, helped you understand what they do. Aura Ruth Kamiani, hi from Israel. Hello, Aura. How are you? I've been studying some of my uh, Israeli history recently, um, taking a, uh, a Bible study currently on the uh, biblical book of uh, Isaiah. I've read the Bible a few times, but I remember just staying really confused in the book of Isaiah. And sure enough, I understand why now. Don Stewart, more importantly, it's what we're eating that's the problem. Carbs, grains, and sugars. It's a really good point. You know, it's very interesting, especially, Don, most people say, well, the doctor told me I had a touch of sugar. So they say, well, I'm going to decrease the sugar in my coffee. It's not usually sugars at all that drives the majority of carbs in 
uh, most destructive diets, like the standard American diet, it's the carb, uh, the the grain um, products. The grains are just, you know, you eat a bowl of pasta or you eat a couple of slices of pizza, you're just getting huge boluses of grains. And people think, well, they're not sugars, they're not sweet, so they're not a problem. They are the bigger problem because those complex carbohydrates are similar to what I described about glycogen a few minutes ago. Glycogen is sort of the body's own form of a complex carbohydrate. It's just one glucose after another, after another, after another, after another. And it takes the body literally seconds to cleave all of those uh, uh, components of that chain and just fill the, blo the blood sugar, the blood with sugar. So thank you so much, Don, for that comment. Brad, for one, I thought you had suggested taking Crestor if you have ILDL cholesterol. Is it only confirmed plaque that confirms inflammation? If high LDL, see 220 or above, but I'm getting a little bit confused, but here's what I think you're asking, Bradford. Yes. Um, you know, I do have, so number one, if you're LDL, not total cholesterol, LDL is above 180 the probability is pretty high that you have one of those genetic variations that we discussed with familial hypercholesterolemia. I've actually had a few patients that did not have plaque, <clears throat> even though they clearly had FH, familial hypercholesterolemia. And I discussed with them, I said, I really don't um, routinely recommend a statin just on LDL level alone. I recommend it based on plaque because it's the what's called um, pleiotropic uh, mechanism of decreasing cardiovascular inflammation. In other words, helping us decrease soft plaque. I'm not going to go quite that far down that, any further down that bunny hole, but here's the thing. If no plaque, even an FH patient, I'm not convinced that you need statins at that point. Uh, most people would, most docs would argue vehemently with that. Clearly, the FH Foundation would argue with that. You know, the FH Foundation tends to think that everybody needs to be on PCSK9s. <clears throat> I can tell you, you know, the um, even in a homozygous FH is a different issue. That means you've got some problems with FH from both your father and your mother. And these people have, I mean, they can have heart attacks in their teens or 20s or younger. You know, I did a I did a video once on a little girl that had homozygous FH and major problems uh, before she even got to her teen years. So number one, although it's not usually LDL, it's usually insulin resistance or one of the other inflammatory mechanisms, LDL does matter. Number two, the vast majority of people, you know, are heterozygous uh, FH and they've got like, you know, LDLs in the 180 level or like you, 220. Um, and they tend not to have as many problems until they start getting insulin resistant. So the real focus still is insulin resistant. Number three, cardiovascular disease is not a single risk factor issue. There are multiple risk factors, high blood pressure, uh, genetics up to and including um, LDL and PCSK9 genetics, but also genetics for things like 
other inflammatory diseases, classic ones being rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. Those inflammatory diseases also drive as much heart, heart attack risk as diabetes. So let me go back to your question and make sure I answered it. Um, so I'll have this discussion with an F, FH patient that does not have plaque. And that, those are not common. Uh, most of the time, by the time somebody sees me, um, they're middle-aged. I do have some younger patients, especially some family members, uh, children of FH patients. And, and that's the story. It's, I describe for them what's actually going on, and then we make it, the patient makes a decision regarding whether or not they want to go on a, on a statin. Uh, the majority of them will say, well, you know, let's just take a, maybe a, a lower-dose statin. And um, I think that makes sense. So I hope that actually responded to your question. I know I certainly went down the bunny hole you were targeting. Black Tango, is patavastatin as good as Crestor at reducing inflammation? You know, that was a great question. When patavastatin first came out, the information was not clear because there's very little science on statins and cardiovascular inflammation. It's out there and it's pretty conclusive. It's actually pretty conclusive now for patavastatin as well, by the way, that yes, it does. But originally it was a couple of years when patavastatin had come out, but there was no science on the inflammation piece. And I was telling my patients that, and they were saying, well, no, this is a good stat. I actually had one patient leave me because they felt like I was an anti-patavastatin person and really didn't understand. And I wasn't saying I'm, I'm anti-patavastatin. I'm just saying, you know, the bigger issue here is inflammation. And at this point, there's no evidence. Whether you like what I have to say or not, you know, I'm going to say what I understand what I see in the evidence. Leo Acapulco, have you heard of bright line eating? I did a video on that. One of my patients and friends alerted me to it. And it's a big, big deal. So what Leo is talking about is, is a, there's a book and there's a, you know, more than one book, I think now, and a lot of content out there. It's a great component. The author had uh, her own acknowledged um, addiction problems more than just food. food but food is an addiction for most uh, for a lot of us and here's the big big difference there's one critical difference between food as an addiction and the other addictions like alcohol or uh, uh, other substances like uh, drugs food is an addiction and when you have a food addiction it's not like you can go cold turkey you can't stop eating you know, with Alcoholics Anonymous, you hear them say, I haven't touched a drop of alcohol in 20 years and I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, the, the implied statement is, yeah, if I go back and I touch alcohol after 20 years, I'm an alcoholic and I'm right down that, that falling off the wagon addiction trail again. You don't hear people with food addictions saying that because you can't go without food for 20 years. So <clears throat> she's making a point. She goes into the issues. There's a lot of information about um, decision science. Believe it or not, decisions, there's significant science around decisions. And 
the basics of bright line eating for the food area is this. And it's based on, you know, when I was at Hopkins, I did a lot of work on, um, on HIV uh, 30 years ago. And I worked with uh, a fellow named David Celentano. He was a world-renowned researcher in addiction. And, and it was an interesting thing is, you know, because I was doing HIV work, he was doing addictions work. We bumped into each other a lot and co-authored some stuff. And I learned from him that, you know, with addicts, they were okay until their source of addiction got into a realistically acceptable, accessible area. As soon as it was, oh, you know what, I can score some Coke or whatever, then their addiction just cranked up. But as long as, excuse me, it was nowhere in sight, nowhere accessible, then they really didn't have that much of a problem. Uh, the author, I think Susan Pierce Thompson is the author, she applied that concept to eating. And that is, you make some really clear um, decisions and you don't, you don't uh, vary from that. You remember when I was described, and that makes it easier for a food addict to deal with their food, and it has worked very, very well. And you're, you may remember when I was describing my own food habits, it's like salad, a piece of fish, salad, a piece of fish, salad, a piece of fish. That was my own version, self-discovery of bright line eating. Because if I tried to make a decision every time we went to a new restaurant, we were on the road, went to a new restaurant, am I going to take this uh, entree or is this entree doable and... Maybe this one doesn't have as much carbs and maybe it doesn't have as much. Maybe it's got carbs, but I won't eat as much. You can't do that. You got to have bright line eating. So thank you, Leo, for bringing that up. JM, Dr. Lustig, you can't fix the health until you fix the food. Black Tango, okay to eat full fat dairy on keto when you have plaque? I think so. Yeah, it's, it's the, it's the carb driven metabolism, not the, dairy-driven metabolism for the vast majority of us. You know, folks with some specific lactate deficiencies, you know, that's a, you know, that's a whole different issue. Aura Ruth, Kimiani, the desire for sweet starts with breast milk. I was shocked at how sweet my breast milk was when I tasted it years ago. P.S. Other moms reported the same thing to me when I asked. That's a very, very interesting comment. And I think true tired looking for name twenty dollar uh super chat thank you again so much tired um for helping us get that content out there that information i'm a lmhr uh in case you don't know what apple this is apple runner and if you in case you don't know what lmhr means it means i'm a lean mass hacker responder what would you recommend as the next step for assessing risk with the doctor also low dose statins. Well, you know, you look at the whole component of where you are in terms of your risk. For example, if you're, if you're, so a lean mass hyper responder is somebody that goes low carb and their LDL shoots out the roof. I had um, the big guy for that, you know, the, the guy that everybody thinks of when they think of that, uh, Dave Feldman. He came on the channel and we had a geeky discussion about this issue. And 
the assumption is that, yeah, and I get people that call me all the time. They say, hey, I went on a, on a low-carb diet. My LDL shot out the roof. My doctor's scared to death. That is a critical issue. And one of the things that your doctor needs to look at or you need to look at is some of the other key drivers. One of the most important is your triglyceride over HDL ratio because your typical lean mass hyperresponder still has good HDL and low LD, uh, triglyceride. And they also have, uh, you know, Dave doesn't look so much at this. I do, cardiovascular inflammation. They all also have little to no cardiovascular inflammation. So there are other risk components that you need to look at. And unfortunately, the vast majority of the medical community doesn't do that. B flint is a B blood pressure systolic number 130 to 140 okay for a 70 plus years old. The simple answer to that is no. We used to think so, but more recent evidence is pretty clear that the answer is no. You want to get 120 or less. Felix, great to hear from you. Thank you so much for your interest and your comment today. Uh, Felix has appeared on the show a couple of times. He's, uh, he's done great work, and it's just that uh, slow, steady change in lifestyle. And he's actually, we, we covered it on, on the channel, he actually reversed significant kidney disease. And that's one of those things where they say, oh, my doctor's the expert in this and the expert in that, and they say you can't reverse plaque. Well, yes, you can. I mean, we've got evidence. I'm evidence of it. Uh, they also say you can't reverse kidney disease. Well, yes, you can. And uh, Felix came on the channel to help us see that, yes, you can. Basil Tif uh, Tiffany, I have to tell you, I'm getting, uh, we've got a lot of comments, a lot of interest. I appreciate it so much. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get to all of the um all of the comments today. I will get to a few more before we go. And again, this is part of the reason we're looking at an, another, adding another media format like Locals so we can help improve that conversation in the community. Basil Tiffany, friend of mine had physical recently. Doc told him that cholesterol looked great despite being high. I guess the doc isn't concerned because of my friend's age, but seems like encouraging heart disease. Well, uh, Basil, I, you may want to look some more at this channel. You know, you're obviously on it right now, and you're obviously making some comments. LDL levels, you know, most doctors think that, you know, anything over 70 is a big deal and a big risk. And here's the thing. Half the people having a heart attack have normal or optimal LDL levels. So... Uh, that really creates a little bit more of a question about just how much does LDL matter in the gestalt, the bigger picture. Arabella Horowitz, since I read Dr. Kraft's book, that's Joseph Kraft, I'm assuming, I've been wanting to get tested for insulin. How and where do I get this test? Well, again, um, we do that on a regular basis. That's the most important test we have uh, that we do when somebody comes to see us and <clears throat> um if you'll call michelle we can you know, we can help you get set up with that uh 
Rob Lowry, several wide. Don't get that. Went right over my head. Nick's repairs. Who can I contact at PrevMed to interpret blood work tests, including particle size? Particle size is a very big issue. And again, um, Gilbert, if you'll just show uh, Michelle's telephone number for the last two folks, that's it, 859-721-1414. B. Flint, you think it's okay to eat four eggs a day when you have plaque? Yep, I do. I do. I'm, I don't think it's okay to eat two bowls of cereal and orange juice. I'd much rather you eat four eggs and not the cereal and orange juice. Rob Lowry, this is going to have to be the last question, comment for the day. Can you address collateral blood vessels in the heart? What are they? What exercise best development? And apparently they saved my life. I never hear them mentioned. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to take a chance here and try to, dis to describe, let's say that's all. Ah, oh, you can't see it. So when vessels get blocked, it's sort of like traffic on the highway. You know when traffic gets blocked because of a wreck? What happens? Well, at the pre people start hearing about it. It starts coming up on their... Um, on their ways and other apps. And they start saying, oh, well, I need to get off and go around another way. That's what happens with your blood supply. You start getting some blockage in this art artery, the blood starts going around other ways. Now, what doesn't happen with traffic, but does happen with your heart is the more traffic you get going on a regular basis in a heart, in an artery, the bigger that artery grows. That bypass is called a collateral. And that's critical. The body knows what to do for blockages. And innumerable people have been saved by collateral uh, circulation. Now, what? so that's what they are. What exercise best develop them? Any exercise that stresses your heart. So, you know, people think, oh, Grandma Jones, don't, don't be uh, exercising. Don't be stressing your heart. I've got uh, my own mother's in her mid-80s, and her favorite thing is to go out and work in the, in the garden. And I love her to death, and she'll say, oh, and she, she'll say, oh, I can't work out quite as much as I used to. I get tired earlier, and she gets frustrated after just a couple of hours. And I'm saying, you know, a lot of sons would say, mom, don't do that. Don't stress your heart. And I'm just the opposite. It's like, go, mom, stress that heart, because that's creating collateral circulation. So, Rob Lowry, thank you so much. The rest of you, thank you so much. And for those of you who had questions, again, just too much to respond to. I really appreciate your interest. And uh, I see True Moose, for example, saying he'll go to Rumble. We were just in the process of downloading. Rumble's got some weird issues in terms of how they do the thing. We've got three or 400 videos up. It's going to take a while to get the other 1,200. But we're getting there. And thank you for your interest. And we'll see you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.